Hello, this is Kevin Barrett of Truth Jihad Radio, your home for historical revisionism on the internet airwaves. Tonight I'm interviewing Professor Sean McMeekin of Bard College. We're doing World War II revisionism. Always a sticky subject. Where else can you hear this kind of show? If you like it, please do go to truthjihad.com and click on the subscribe at Substack button. Hello. Uh, hello, is this Sean? Yes, I'm sorry. I've been having uh, connection issues. I'm up in the mountains. Uh, I hope I haven't... Yeah, that's situation. what I was just telling people. <laughs> okay. Yes, I'm up in the mountains. So, um, thanks for having me on. Well, hey, it's good to have you. And I, I guess you're kind of you're waging your, your uh, guerrilla war against established history from your readout high in the mountains. And, and you're, you're doing a great job scoring a lot of hits. Uh, Stalin's That's war right. Is I'm, I'm, I'm in hiding up here, as you can see. But, uh, but it, it was good of you to find me. And again, my, my apologies for making that more challenging than it should have been. <laughs> Well, yeah, it's always great to keep our producer on their, on his toes and make him earn his salary of a uh, big fat zero. <laughs> uh, so let's let's get into Stalin's War. This is really a, a terrific book. Um, I enjoyed this as much as I've ever enjoyed reading any World War II book. Uh, so what what got you started on on this? Uh, you know, World War II revisionism is is a, a field with with pitfalls and and, and minefields and stuff. Uh, how did you get into that? Well, it's a good question. I mean, I suppose there's kind of the long version of the story and the shorter version. I mean, going back all the way to, I suppose, my high school years when I was just a history buff and, and kind of a budding student of history, um, I, I had a couple of good teachers and and they, they sponsored me and, and helped me apply for a grant, which, believe it or not, was actually uh, given by the National Endowment for the Humanities. Although, curiously enough, and I still have this in my files, it was signed by, I believe, Lynn Cheney. <laughs> so she was at the oh. time from you the notorious Cheney, Cheney family. Too. I, I, I got, I got yeah. changed out of no, academia. It's, Lynn Cheney. Cheney. it's not Liz Cheney. It's Lynn Cheney. I, I think this must be Dick oh, Cheney's mother, if I if I remember correctly. I, I've actually forgotten yeah. all the the family history of the Cheneys. Um, but at the time, she was actually head of the National Endowment for the Humanities, and this was the year. I, it was 1992, and so uh, the year after the collapse of the Soviet Union, a couple of years after the fall of the Berlin Wall, and obviously there was a lot of curiosity about events behind the proverbial iron curtain. And um, my project, such as it was, and I, I still can't quite remember how this idea got into my head. It must have been, I suppose, in part my rascally kind of ornery sense. But I wanted to, uh, to tackle or to challenge the myth of the Great Patriotic War, that is the Soviet kind of Great Patriotic War. I, I had come across this, I think, in, in a couple of books, and I had somehow gotten a hold of this great Soviet encyclopedia from the 1970s. <laughs> Which was litigating every single point. It was all about how the Soviets were the only ones who had fought and, you know, this and that. And anyway, so I got this grant. And admittedly, at the time, I didn't really have any Russian yet. So this was not a, an especially serious research project. But the highlight of it, and I was just 18 years old at the time. And most of my friends, I suppose, were, you know, going out like to the drive-in theaters and, you know, doing miniature golf and getting up to whatever mischief most uh, 18-year-olds were doing after hours with the opposite sex and you know I, I was kind of holed up with my books um but i somehow discovered that there were six red army veterans and i say that kind of advisedly 
actually some of them had fought in the Red Army kind of in the in the normal sense of actually having been conscripted into it. Some of them had actually been prisoners of war, later conscripted into it. There were various ethnicities and they all happened to be living in this nursing home in Rochester, New York, which is my hometown. And uh, it was it was difficult interviewing them because uh, their English was spotty and I, I didn't really have Russian yet. Um, and a couple of them were um, I mean, they were very eager to talk, but um, at least I think four or five of them were missing limbs. I think two of them were missing at least two limbs. Um, and, you know, so they had these very vivid stories. Um, you know, they had a certain kind of joie de vivre, a certain kind of uh, uh, um, zealous just kind of enthusiasm for life, which I found really infectious. But, of course, their stories, I mean, they didn't fit any of what you might think of as sort of your standard literature of the Second World War. You know, you end up in one prison camp and then you're in another uh, you're behind enemy lines for a time, then you're seen as an enemy of the state, you know, by the Soviets. Um, so, you know, I, I got, one might say, kind of a jaundiced view of that war. And then, you know, as I as I grew older and I was just reading up on the war and, you know, I kind of, I think what's strange is we, we almost have this counter tradition in, in the West. Um, I mean, when, when it comes to the Russians and their own chauvinistic version of the war, they just ignore us entirely. You know, <laughs> we're not even there, basically. Whereas our version, uh, yes, it's true. We have a little bit of the kind of the, the whole cult of D-Day and, and cult of Churchill and to some extent cult of Roosevelt and all of that. Uh, or if you go to the World War II Museum in New Orleans, you get kind of Tom Hanks narrating the, the heroic victory over fascism and this kind of very simplistic black and white uh, view of the war. Um, but we've also always been a little bit self-effacing, kind of always looking at the heroic sacrifices of, of, the, of, of the Red Army. And, and I always found that a little bit odd. I mean, yes, heroic in, in the suffering of, of the Red Army soldiers, I think we can all appreciate. Um, but, but uh, you know, people kind of forgot that, of course, Hitler and Stalin were allies for several years. <laughs> that In fact, a lot of Stalin's war aims that he was enunciating at Tehran and Yalta with the Western allies were no different than the ones he was enunciating with Hitler and the whole story of the good war. I always just found a little bit, I suppose, on the nose. Um, so, yeah, I, I always did have a little bit of this rebellious streak, I think, going back to my high school years. Right. Yeah. Well, World War II mythology is is so key to the, what's happened since. You know, I've, and I've always looked at it more from sort of the American construction of, you know, our good war that undergirds the empire that we gained after World War II. Uh, and, and I grew up in a kind of a, a left wing dominated uh, intellectual and academic environment that critiqued that and often offered a very uh, sort of partial pro-Soviet uh, narrative of, of the war and the heroic sacrifices of the Russians uh, against the demonized cartoon villain Hitler and all of this. Um, but your book yeah. uh, re really kind of, you know, has opened my mind. I mean, I, I already had gotten halfway there from other things, but um, but your book really makes a good case that Stalin is the central figure and the central orchestrator and the central villain, uh, in a sense, of, of the war. And of course, that's a very dangerous kind of assertion because the cartoon villainhood of Hitler is canonical. I mean, that that's our secular religion today is is, is worshiping or anti-worshiping Hitler, I guess. Uh, and, and so no, I, I think that's so. right. Yeah. No, you're right. And I mean, like, on, on one level, I could just say, well, look, you know, people have ignored Stalin's crimes and Stalin's role in the war and all the rest of it. But you're right. I am kind of making a larger claim in the book, which is not just about kind of villainy, um, but also about you know who, who the war's real victor was and even to some extent whose interests the war served. Um, you know, if you look at almost any moment, really, any of the kind of the key moments of 
war. And one thing I do in the book is I look right at the outbreak of the war, at least the war in Europe. I mean, in Asia, of course, it's a longer, more drawn out story. But in Europe, you're looking at late August, early September 1939. And there's always been something very strange about the story. It doesn't really make any sense, right? I mean, England and France, or Britain and France, decide that they are going to give this kind of guarantee to Poland. There's no real pledge of doing anything. You know, there's no active promise of military assistance. It's not clear if they're actually going to fight Germany, if they're just going to send Poland aid. It's all left very ambiguous. Uh, secretly, I suppose there's a, some understanding that they really only mean Germany, even though they don't mention Germany. They don't really mean the Soviet Union. Um, but supposedly that is they go to war on behalf of Poland and then they don't actually do anything to help Poland. Um you know, it's very strange. Um, and, you know, there's always been speculation from the German side, too. I mean, yes, obviously, German war preparations were, were very well advanced. And we all know about the timetable and the weather and all this and late summer weather and, and all the talk of Blitzkrieg. I mean, obviously, the Germans had been preparing or planning for this type of a war. But on the other hand, everyone gets cold feet at the last minute. In fact, there are these last minute delays and kind of these exchanges between the capitals. And there's even a little bit of talk of some sort of backdoor deal involving, you know, Gdansk or Danzig for the Polish corridor. And and people also forget. I mean, everyone assumes, oh, this this had to happen the way it did. No, in fact, Nazi Germany and Poland had been allies for about five years before this. Both of them had seen the Soviet Union as a key villain. Um, so the story, and a lot of it doesn't really make sense, like on the level we've been told, that it's just this inevitable story that eventually the West fed up with Hitler and they had to take a stand over over Poland. Um, you know, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense strategically or geographically that they would make that stand. In fact, they didn't really make the stand. They didn't really do anything to help Poland. I mean, meanwhile, you know, there's one power that's just kind of sitting there almost gleefully, you know, kind of you can almost hear Stalin and Molotov cackling in the background. You can almost hear this in Molotov's speech to the Supreme Soviet on August 31st, 1939. He's openly mocking all these the laborites, the, the Clement Attlees and the Leon Blooms, the kind of the center left in Britain and France who would all, you know, they'd all been boasting about their anti-fascist credentials, saying like, now we're going to see what kind of warriors they are. Um, it all falls in perfectly, almost perfectly into place. In fact, I think in, in some ways, and I'm trying to point in the book that it, in, in Asia, it actually fell even more perfectly into place so that Stalin got to wait for the perfect moment to intervene in that war while there was a lot of, you know, kind of fighting and dying going on by by the so-called imperialist or capitalist powers. In Europe, I mean, it, it very nearly got, got kind of, it blew up in its face very nearly with, with Barbarossa. But that said, up to then, it had actually been going swimmingly. Everything was just working perfectly for Stalin, you know, almost without breaking a sweat. He was able to, you know, carve out this new empire in Poland and Finland didn't go quite as well. You know, that, that's a whole story unto itself. But, you know, even in Romania, I mean, he was kind of expanding the boundaries of, of communism almost without breaking a sweat as a, a kind of opportunistic junior. Or as I think he liked to see his senior partner to Hitler. I think that's where things actually broke down, was kind of who, who was the real senior partner in that in that relationship. Yeah, it was actually Stalin who pushed the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, right? Uh, the it, 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 well, yeah, I mean, as far as w where the impetus is coming from, I think that's quite true when it comes to partitioning Poland, when it comes to the actual territorial swap, it's absolutely Stalin. I mean, sure, Hitler is worried about the possibility that, you know, that the Western powers are going to go to war with him. And so he wants some type of a deal just to kind of put the Eastern Front, at least the Soviet part of the Eastern Front, on ice for as long as he needs. But he's not really paying very close attention to the details. Um, nearly all of the details are negotiated by the Soviets, very much to Soviet specifications. And the Soviets are quite adamant about what they want. And, you know, they say, no, we want this port, we want that port. And Hitler has to kind of give them what they want, because Stalin, in fact, has the leverage. And 
And that remains true for the next year, maybe year and a half of the relationship. Um, that is to say that Stalin really does have, he holds most of the cards because you know, the Germans, after all, fighting a world war, and they've got Britain and the British blockade to deal with and the possibility of American intervention, at the very least American support for Britain. And, and Stalin is supposedly neutral at peace, even though, of course, he's invading a, a whole number of other countries. So, yeah, he really holds all, all the leverage. Um, I think in the end, he just overplayed his hand a little bit. And um, and that's where the relationship broke down, you know, in the late fall of 1940. Well, did, did he uh, overplay his, his hand or did he just get uh, get hit with uh, a more competent German war machine than he bargained for? That's, your book kind of gives that impression that of of all of the factors that threw Stalin off, it was the fact that, that the Germans fought better than he had expected they would, both in, in their invasions uh, west and then after Barbarossa. Uh, and it, you know, if it hadn't been for that, it, it, things might have gone much easier, and the great patriotic war might have worked out even better with, with a lot mm -hmm. fewer losses. Well, I do think it's a little of both. I mean, to begin with, uh, Stalin overplaying his hand. I mean, what I'm talking about here is with the diplomacy in the fall of 1940, it's a little bit involved. There are various questions that come up in the relationship between Berlin and Moscow relating to Romania, for example, relating to the, the Danube Delta Soviet complaints about German incursions, both into Romania and into Finland. And Stalin really ratchets up his demands, um, going beyond what had been promised in the Molotov rip in or as it's more formally known, the Moscow Pact of August 1939. So Stalin wants a position not just in Bessarabia, as we usually call Bessarabia, but also in Bukovina, northern Bukovina. He wants the Germans to withdraw all of their, their kind of troops and forces from Romania, from Finland. He then actually demands the right to uh, station troops as the kind of the term of art is to have a guarantee to Bulgaria, meaning he wants to actually invade Bulgaria's land troops there, and also uh, the Turkish Straits, the Bosporus. Um, no, I do think he overplayed his hand in the sense that he didn't realize, you know, that maybe by that point Hitler was kind of growing tired of this relationship where the Germans were, you know, taking the odium of the world as the villain of the world and, you know, doing most of the fighting and the Russians were just kind of picking out whatever they wanted from the map. Uh, but as far as um, the actual military events on the ground, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the Soviet preparations were quite thorough. Um, that is to say, they were absolutely preparing for some kind of war, viewing, I mean, people act like this is controversial, but as far as what they were planning for, as far as the military chiefs, I mean, we know it. We actually have not all the documents, but we have enough to know the type of war they were planning for. It wasn't just against Germany, it was Germany and her allies. They were expecting that possibly Hungary and Slovakia and Finland and Romania and, and maybe other countries such as Italy might intervene. This is the, the assumption of all military planning. Um, they obviously weren't ready yet at the time that Hitler invaded. And, you know, some, some of the kind of the polemic or the argument comes down to this, the question of the so-called preemptive war. I don't think Hitler or the German general saw it as preemptive in the literal sense that I don't think they thought the Soviets were ready or were poised to strike when they did. They certainly knew the Soviets were preparing for war. And frankly, the Germans were just faster and better when it came to logistics and military preparations. And yeah, they absolutely caught the Soviets if not completely unprepared, then obviously unready for what was about to unfold. And, and yeah, they just destroyed uh, vast numbers of, of Soviet warplanes on the ground, as, as we've always known. I mean, we, it's not like it's a mystery. We know what happens in the early hours and days of Barbarossa. It's a debacle for the Soviets. I mean, but but, but so why did it happen? That's 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 the issue. Yeah. Is, what was the primary reason that it, that the Germans did so well at first? 
uh, was it because the the Russians were not, you know betrayed? They had no idea this was coming, and and it was a stab in the back, and all this sort of thing, which we're often told in the in the right. common history. Or is it possible that Stalin had put the Russian forces in an offensive configuration that would have been just fine if he had uh, gotten in the first blow, but that was vulnerable to a first strike by Hitler? And that that's kind of that yeah. leads to the question about the Suvorov thesis which argues right. that indeed it was preemptive and that Stalin might have been able to not only invade uh, the Reich, but all, go all the way to the Atlantic. Yeah, I mean, there's an interesting aspect there. I, I don't fully agree in the sense that I don't think the Soviets would have made it that far. That is to say, I think the Soviets would have struggled themselves had they ever actually tried to launch this kind of offensive attack that at the very least... However, seriously, that, that's certainly what the deployment pattern suggests. That is to say, I mean, to give one one statistic that I unearthed for the book, which I think was new uh, from the files of the Soviet, um, basically the Ministry of Physical Aerodrome Construction, which is actually run by the NKVD's air bases that they're building, that of the 251 new aerodromes or air bases that they built in the first six months of 1941, 199, just under 80 percent, were in the frontier districts abutting the German Reich. That is to say, basically the newly occupied districts that, that the Soviets had occupied since 1939. So it's a very offensive deployment pattern. There's no doubt about that. I mean, as far as the concentration of armor, uh, the building of new tank parks and petrol stations and air bases. And another thing that, that I discovered, um, you know, a lot of Russian historians, and I absolutely credit them for all the, the pioneering work they've been doing since Suvorov first came out with this thesis uh, a little more than three decades ago. And they've uncovered all kinds of information. I think one thing that I found, which actually wasn't that hard to find, is in the, the so-called special files of the Politburo, which Believe it or not, as of a couple of years ago, you could just walk into our Gospi, the Central Communist Party archive, and ask for them, and they would actually just hand them to you. Um, wow, that's what that's better than you can do with the Freedom of Information Act here. <laughs> yeah, I know. I don't know if you can still do this in Russia. I think I think probably after my book came out, they're, they're probably not going to let people do this anymore. But amazingly, it's just right there. You can see what they're talking about in the days before Barbarossa. You know, they have... Obviously, they have massive warnings. I mean, it's not as if this was a secret. They're getting warnings from all kinds of different sources about this massive buildup on their frontier. And this kind of panic sets in. I mean, they, you know, they, they, they're, they're a little bit in shock at how quickly the German uh, preparations are proceeding. They haven't even finished the air bases. They haven't built the roofs of a lot of them. You know, they haven't camouflaged anything. Uh, they're trying to order up things like dummy air bases and, you know, dummy tanks and dummy warplanes and, and all the orders that they want to get this stuff finished by July 5th or July 15th or July 25th. Whereas, in fact, as we know, of course, the, uh, the, the Germans and their allies struck on June 22nd. So they were, you know, at a, as much as a month too late, that is, with these kind of last minute preparations. Um, so, no, I do think they were preparing for a kind of a, again, an offensive war, not in the sense that they were necessarily going to catch the Germans completely unaware, but in the sense that, in fact, in the way they kind of talked about it, I think the way they, they thought things were going to happen was that the Germans were going to kind of telegraph a punch and that would give them their cue for this massive counter strike. And yes, they would then you know, pour into kind of Poland or Germany. I personally don't think it was ever a realistic prospect simply based on the kind of the competency level of 
the Red Army, uh, particularly its commanders at the time. Um, now, as far as the Germans and what they saw, I mean, you know, they, they did see the buildup on the frontier. They had very good intel on that, and that's part of the reason they were able to knock so many warplanes out of the ground, you know, in the early hours. I don't think they knew how much Stalin had in reserve, and I think that's where the German planning actually was, in the end, inadequate. And uh, and I'm not incompetent, just that the Germans, you know, they, they didn't realize, I mean, Stalin had been building up for 13 years, you know, they, they didn't realize quite how much armor he had in reserve. Yeah, and, and and that leads to a couple of insights from your book that I hadn't realized, and and one of course is the scale of that buildup, and that from what 1928 or so, Stalin was was obsessively building up for the next big war that he was plotting and, and expecting, but then also that all of that uh, amazing buildup that he had done was greatly augmented uh, by the the lend lease program to a you know a greater extent than we realize. And which ties into another and, and another fresh uh, insight from your book is that uh, Churchill and to, to a greater extent, uh, Roosevelt were uh, really not helping their nation's interests by kowtowing to Stalin and giving him the armaments that he was able to use to, to conquer Eastern Europe, for example, and end up with that uh, greatly expanded communist empire after the war. So, so it's all of this gives us a, a really different kind of view of the war than the Hitler-centric version. Well, yeah, I mean, the only thing I would I would uh, kind of subtly um, distinguish there is that I think part of what Lend-Lease was able to do, it wasn't, I think he used the word augment, which was interesting. And that's partly true. But part of what was happening after 1941 is that that vast military buildup that they had been, again, working on since 1928 and had been accelerating massively between 1938, 39 and 1941, a lot of that was destroyed in the first uh, four, five, six months of Barbarossa. That is to say, Stalin did have this Massive tank park, absolutely massive air force, you know, that just dwarfed anything that the Germans had in the Luftwaffe. And the same thing with the size of the tank park. And admittedly, they were not all state of the art. The so-called T the T-34 tanks or the KVs, those were still comparatively speaking, a, a smaller percentage of uh, the Soviet tank park. Um, but that said, that that vast Soviet tank park of 23, 24,000 odd tanks was mostly destroyed in the first four or five months after the invasion. And in fact, Soviet factories were not making up the deficit. Like we have enough files now to know that this kind of, again, one of the myths of the Great Patriotic War is, you know, they evacuate all the industries to Moscow and they're able to recapitulate the, the, the heroic uh, production levels of, of socialist planned kind of military production and all that. And they did evacuate hundreds of factories. That's absolutely true. Um, even the ones they were able to then uh, recapitulate, however, would not really have been able to function without vast industrial inputs coming from Britain and the United States via Lend-Lease. Um, so some of it was just that their own factories couldn't have really continued to operate anywhere near uh, peak capacity without those inputs. And a lot of it was uh, the tanks and the warplanes and uh, particularly the trucks, the Jeeps, the Studebakers um, and so on that, that were pouring in in vast quantities. I mean, you're talking about in terms of just motorized Jeeps and trucks alone, well, more than 400,000 that are shipped uh, to Stalin during the war. It would have been even more, but Stalin actually didn't allow the Americans to, uh, to build a kind of a full reassembly plant 
on Soviet territory because he didn't he didn't trust having that many American engineers around. Instead, they had to do a lot of them places like Iran, uh, where they would actually kind of reassemble the trucks and then and then basically drive them into the Soviet Union. Um, uh, so vast quantities of, of finished products as well. And the Soviets used to always claim, dude, this is one of those other things you're going to read in a lot of the literature on the war and even some of the critics of my book said like, oh, but the American tanks, they were death traps and the Soviet drivers didn't like them. Well, of course they would say that, wouldn't they? Because <laughs> they were trying to claim that something was their own. So, oh yes, the T-34, this fantastic tank, that's what won the war. And it was a very impressive tank and it was durable. It was versatile. It, it was not infallible. There were a lot of problems with the T-34, like all tanks. I mean, it had certain things that did well, other things that didn't do well. Um, but you're able to actually see now, and it, it's difficult to piece together, but if you do know where to look, you can find out, for example, things like percentages of Lend-Lease tanks, even in the Soviet tank park during certain battles. So if you're looking at Stalingrad or Bagration, this is either 1942 or 1944, you know, you're looking at a, a pretty significant percentage, uh, often upwards of 30% or more, that is, of, of the tanks that the Soviets are claiming, you know, were actually of American and British manufacturers. With the trucks, it's it's much more that. With the trucks, it's almost exclusive, you know, with things like foodstuffs and, and pork, the spam and the sugar. I mean, it's almost exclusively the, the Americans that are feeding the Red Army. Um, and so, yes, it is true the Soviets did heroically rebuild a lot of their industrial capacity um, east of Moscow, particularly in places um, in the Ural Mountains. Um, however, I, I don't think the Red Army would have been able to achieve the victories that it did. I mean, I, I found this one, some of this in the Soviet files, some of the American files. But one of the most interesting letters I found was actually in the German military archives where uh, a member actually of, uh, you know, he was general rank, basically, just under Polis. Um, and he wrote back to his wife that 50 percent of um, the motorized vehicles and the new armored divisions being thrown against us at Stalingrad are American manufactured. Um, you know, so it was, it was significant. Um, the Russians have tried to downplay this ever since. I mean, there, there was a, a brief moment in the 90s in the aughts where things were kind of opening up and the Russians actually opened up a Lend-Lease Museum in Moscow and lots of books came out kind of thanking the Americans and talking about solidarity and all the rest of it. And, and now it's all being clamped shut again. Um, the Russians don't want to hear about it. And, and I understand why not. I mean, it's, a, it's it kind of th throws a little bit of shade at the heroic uh, victory of the Red Army in the war if they were in any way reliant on the Anglo-Saxon capitalism, you know, as the term of art would have been at the time. And it also uh, throws some shade at the uh, heroic uh, Western uh, myth of Churchill and Roosevelt and so on. Your narrative uh, leaves the reader with the impression that Churchill, and especially Roosevelt, tended to get snookered by Stalin, could have held out for terms that could have made things go better for their interests and, and maybe for humanity. And, and, and they missed various opportunities. One opportunity you mentioned was the, the Allies could have bombed uh, Baku uh, and taken out mm. the oil uh, that was fueling both uh, Stalin and Hitler. Uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about that. So what, how did that almost happen and, and, and what could have happened if it had? Well, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because British reviewers in particular have been going off the handle about this, which I just find absolutely bewildering. I mean, it's just one of those things I guess they wish was swept down the memory hole. Um, and, yeah, the, the way they usually will critique my approach here is saying, uh, well, this was a fantasy. It either couldn't have happened or never would have happened. Whereas, in fact, what I'm doing, I'm not concocting some counterfactual fantasy. I'm discussing what was actually happening at the time, which is to say in the winter of 1939-1940, when the war 
war in the basically in Europe, it sort of almost died down. Poland had been crushed between the German and Russian pincers. The Western allies weren't doing anything. The so-called um, phony war or Sitzkrieg, as the Germans kind of mocked it. Um, and yes, Britain and France were looking around for something to do. And, and the French kind of understandably uh, didn't want to have yet another world war fought on French soil. It's part of the reason they were so reticent to really get directly involved against the Germans in the early months of the war. And uh, the French were a little more gung-ho than the British were. Some of this went all the way back to the days of the revolution when the Bolsheviks had defaulted. And the biggest victim of this actually were French bondholders, not just the government, but huge numbers of French private citizens. France had always had a very kind of a antipathetic relationship with the Soviet Union. Um, and the French had good grounds, that is, also for not wanting the war to be fought in Europe. And so the French actually would have preferred uh, that Britain would have looked seriously at the possibility of intervening uh, directly in Finland, where the Soviets had invaded and they kind of gotten bogged down. Uh, now, Britain tended to favor, to the extent that the British chiefs of staff and advisors were starting to talk about it. Uh, the British were still preferring the Norway option, but they did start to get interested in this thing you were talking about, which is to say bombing the oil fields of Baku and also the pipelines, which were running to Batumi over on the Black Sea coast. And in fact, in early April 1940, uh, Daredevil British pilot and photographer, they did actually photograph uh, these kind of the oil derricks, the installations, the pipeline refineries in great detail. And the British actually sent a squadron of Blenheim bombers uh, to Albania, based in northern Iraq, preparatory to what was supposed to be about a six-week bombing campaign. Um, and they were quite serious about this. In fact, we know they were serious about it. And again, this is one of those things where the, some of these British reviewers, have, they just don't even want to hear about it. And I think part of the reason is not just that it, it didn't happen. And to some extent, they eventually, I think, were even embarrassed because Stalin later became their ally and it caused some diplomatic friction. Um, but also because of what it actually led to, which it's not their fault exactly, but Stalin got wind of these plans because he had this amazing intelligence network. Um, and first of all, he decided to sue for peace with Finland, and he signed this very early peace in March 1940, actually somewhat disappointedly not getting everything that he had wanted out of the war, in part because Finland had put up such a stout defense. Um, but even before signing this peace on the 5th of March 1940, we now know, because we have the documents, this is when Stalin, or literally Lavrenti Beria, the secret police chief of the NKVD, issued the order um, that they were first going to round up more than 25,000 Polish officers, elites, etc., um, and, um, and, and execute them, um, basically shoot them in the back of the head. Uh, this is what we now refer to as the Katyn or Katyn Forest Massacre, although that's not actually where they were shot. That's where most of the bodies were dumped. Um, and in fact, these uh, roundups and executions were carried out almost in precise tandem with the overflights of, of uh, the British pilots. They took off the RAF marking, so they had plausible deniability. Um, now, a lot of people said what I say in the book is that, oh, they should have done this. And look, I, I think it might have it might have worked. I mean, it's hard to know um, what did happen in the end. This is what happened with so much of kind of British and French uh, both planning and operations in the first year of the war, is that, of course, it it was just it was dilatory. They they never got around to doing it. By the time they did, both Stalin had signed a peace with Finland. And by the time they were talking about doing this, by the way, beginning in about mid-May 1940, possibly by around May 15th or, or May 20th. And of course, as we know, it wasn't just that the Germans beat them to the punch in Norway in, in April. They also beat them to the punch by invading France in the Low Countries. I mean, there's this amazing moment where one of the, the British uh, advisors who's planning all of this, um, Fitzroy McLean, who later wrote a bestseller called Eastern Approach. He was actually in Paris. He was en route. He was supposed to go to Damascus 
uh, to liaise with the French general there, Weygand, and they were basically going to plot this bombing campaign uh, against the Soviet uh, oil installations in, in the Transcaucasus. Um, and of course, he never got there because the, the Germans invaded France and the Low Countries and he had to hightail it back to London. So the whole thing was just memory hole. Um, now, could it have worked? I mean, it's hard to know. I mean, like what, what they did say was that the oil derricks were spaced so relatively closely apart, um, that is kind of along the water of the Caspian near Baku, that the bombers wouldn't have had to have been especially accurate, that they could have lit this huge blaze. This is what Stalin heard from his own advisor. Stalin actually called in a bunch of American geologists, advisors, people from the U.S. embassy, and he asked them what would happen. And they said it'd be a debacle. You know, you'd have fires raging for, for weeks. I mean, not entirely unlike what happened with some of the fires in Iraq after the Gulf War. Um, you know, just knocking production completely out of whack and and uh, and denying oil both, of course, to the Red Army, um, but also uh, to the Germans, who uh, we actually have some of the figures now. Like we know when the Germans invaded France and the Low Countries, they were getting a, a substantial percentage of uh, their petroleum uh, from the Soviets. If you look at 1940 as a whole, they were getting as much as, as perhaps a third. Uh, they're getting maybe half from Romania, another third from the Soviets, so that, you know, in the end, Stalin really has a kind of a because the stuff even from Romania had to go across Soviet territory. Stalin kind of had a stranglehold over Hitler's uh, petroleum resources. Right. And, and that became a, a major point of friction. Ultimately, it, we, we mentioned earlier how when, when it came down to the uh, kind of a destruction of the, uh, uh, the German-Soviet alliance, uh, the, the, that uh, I, I wonder, would, would you agree that it, you can read it as if Stalin, uh, his terms were so impossible for Hitler, that is, Stalin was insisting on essentially uh, taking uh, German uh, what, sovereignty or control away from the uh, minerals in, in Finland and uh, you know the energy in Romania and so on, that Hitler couldn't possibly agree to those terms. I wonder, was that possibly uh, an offer that was designed to be refused? Well, uh, th that's a you really. You said he overplayed question. his hand. Um, <laughs> yeah, he overplayed his hand. Wasn't an offer that that Hitler. I mean, it, it's a really good question because again, the, the kind of the more traditional view is: look, as early as the summer of 1940, Hitler had made up his mind. He put his generals to work. They started planning Barbarossa. I mean, look, the the better historians, you know, who've really looked seriously at this, do say that Hitler had basically made up his mind and you could look at kind of the, you know, the specific directive in December 1940. By then, the Germans were definitely moving ahead with their planning. I don't think things were necessarily settled before November 1940. This is when also Molotov makes his first, um, you know, after Ribbentrop had gone uh, to Moscow, Molotov visits Berlin on November 12th and 30th of 1940. And he actually does meet with Hitler and Hess and, you know, a lot of the other top, top Nazis. Um, and, you know, if you look at both the lead up to this and also uh, the transcripts while it was happening. And the other thing that I discovered was quite interesting in, in the real time uh, telegrams being sent back and forth between Molotov and Stalin. Um, you know, Molotov, he's just following orders. You know, Stalin, what he makes perfectly clear is that, you know, this this is basically like you cannot give ground on this question of Bulgaria and the Straits. Like that to him is, is central. That is the key. But he also insists that the Germans must remove all this the military personnel from Romania and Finland. And in the case of Finland, it was nickel that was particularly important. And this is in German panzer production. When it came to the Balkans, and although Hitler wasn't explicit about this in conversation with, with Molotov, probably because he, he didn't want to make it clear quite how vulnerable Germany was, it wasn't just for example, the petroleum, important as that was, it was also other metals, in particular chrome or chromium, uh, where nearly all of Germany's 
supplies coming both from Turkey and from the Balkans were passing through the Balkans, passing through places like Romania. So it wasn't just what was in Romania itself. It's also what's kind of transiting through. So the thing is, if Stalin is making a push for Romania, but particularly Bulgaria and the Bosporus, um, this will give him a, a stranglehold not only over the petroleum resources, natural petroleum, that is to say, famously, of course, some of the German companies were experimenting with uh, extracting it from coal, but hugely expensive and, and not practical um, on a large scale. And so the Germans are looking at the cutting off potentially the petroleum resources. Uh, there are a lot of other non-ferrous metals as well, but in particular, it was chrome and chromium. Um, and they really could not have ma manufactured things like armor plate and, you know, a lot of the refined steel that, that they needed, uh, you know, for their panzers and their warplanes with, without chrome. I mean, everyone knows that chrome was this hugely strategic material in the war, and everyone knows that Turkey played a big role in this. But in fact, the Balkans themselves, the, the southern or the lower Balkans, were also just as important here. Um, and I, I discovered, I mean, this is also one of the things I was the most excited to discover in the book. I mean, it sometimes it's an odd place. Sometimes it's in the American or British or Russian or German archives. In this case, it was actually in the Bulgarian archives. Um, I actually discovered um, a conversation between Hitler and the Bulgarian minister to, to Berlin uh, shortly after Hitler had just kind of done this triumphal tour where he's signing all these agreements uh, in these new countries are, you know, in the Balkans, countries like Slovakia are adhering to the so-called tripartite pact as they restyled the old anti-comintern pact. And, you know, Hitler is at the time, everyone's paying paying homage to him. He's the great conqueror in all of this. And, and what he gets from Stalin is a kind of almost like a blackmail. You know, basically, um, you must agree to this, 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 and this, including the Romania, Finland, all that stuff I was talking about, including Soviet troops in Bulgaria, Soviet troops at the Bosporus, or we will not join your pact. Now, obviously, Hitler had been a different kind of person. <laughs> he might have responded to that in a more measured way. But the way he did respond to this was by unloading for about a three-hour monologue about how, you know, he really couldn't trust Stalin and how he understood Stalin's true intentions, which, which is to say it was a little bit spur of the moment. You know, not that he hadn't been thinking about it before, but that it was kind of a last straw moment. Now, your question, which I don't I don't know if I quite have the answer. This is a great question. That is, was Stalin intending for this offer to be refused? Um, I'm not sure. I mean, I think that maybe Stalin really did think he had kind of Hitler over a barrel, you know, that he really did have Hitler twisting on his finger and that he was going to get what he wanted out of Hitler. Um, I think that it was a miscalculation, at least in part. Um, there's certainly, uh, you know, we don't know because we were there. I mean, maybe Stalin didn't know Hitler would refuse and all of this, but um, it's it's quite clear, though, that he did refuse. It's quite clear how he did react. And it's also quite clear how violently Hitler reacted to that refusal. Right. Uh, well, uh, you mentioned that the, you know, the, the talk of bombing Baku uh, and, as you say in the book, turning the war into a principled war against these two uh, aggressive uh, criminal dictators uh, is sort of, you know, an opportunity that might have been. And, and of course, as you said, the British reviewers apparently didn't like that. Well, another uh, sort of semi counterfactual possibility that arises from your book is what if uh, Churchill and especially Roosevelt had been shrewder in pursuing mm. their own interests uh, in, instead of just giving Stalin everything he wanted and then some with the Lend-Lease and, and in so many other ways, what if they had been played a little harder to get and pursued their own interests a little more and been a little tougher on Stalin? Could they have um, improved the way the war uh, played out by doing that um, 
I know that's very speculative, but I'm wondering if you could flesh that out. Sure. Well, no, it's a great question. I mean, I'll, I'll take them in turn because their positions are, although analogical, they are somewhat different, of course, not just in that Churchill and Britain were already you know, in the war, of course, at, at a time when the U.S. was still neutral in 1940-41. Um, you know, Churchill's he's in a very peculiar position when he comes to power, um, you know, which is to say he comes to power, then almost immediately France and the Low Countries go under, and of course, famously, Britain's alone. And the, the mythology here is, of course, this is the, the finest moment, the finest hour, and all of this, and there are all kinds of movies, and you don't have to, to hear from me about the legend. It's quite familiar, I think, to, to nearly everyone who follows the war. Um, but of course, it's not exactly good news to be alone. I mean, it, Churchill felt completely isolated. You know, you have this kind of German war machine encamped across the, the channel. Um, he starts writing these kind of plaintive letters to Stalin, and Stalin doesn't respond to any of them. You know, it's just, it's it's really, it's it's kind of sad in a way. You know, he's desperate for an ally. Yes, Roosevelt is kind of quietly promising him under the table, we, we will help you, but it's promising. Here's what's so odd about Roosevelt is that he plays hardball with Churchill and Britain in a way he never did with Stalin. Um, so that at one point, he actually pretty much asked Churchill, he said, look, if you guys are in such a pickle now with the Germans, you know, basically taking over France across the channel and you're worried about your fleet, you're welcome to send the British fleet to us and we'll take it over for you. Um, and a little bit later, the famous. We'll take it. We'll take your gold supplies. Deal. We'll take your fleet. <laughs> yeah, we'll take your fleet. We'll we'll start taking your colonies. You know, this is basically the, the basis everything for destroyers have. deal. They pretty much kind of take over the British Empire in the Western Hemisphere. Um, so Roosevelt's capable of being quite ruthless when it comes to Churchill, and Churchill's in this awful position. And so, I, I mean, I do have a lot more kind of innate, almost instinctive sympathy for Churchill, the position he's in. It's a real pickle. Um, and yeah, you could make the argument, okay, maybe, you know, he, he should have just considered negotiating some kind of deal. But obviously that wasn't in his nature. You know, he was a fighter. That's kind of what he stood for, is what he believed in. And given that kind of circumstance, he was in a very difficult position. You know, and, and I think Hitler, frankly, would have negotiated. Had Churchill, Churchill obviously didn't want to negotiate. You know, that, that's fine. You know, he was a man of principle. But he's in a real pickle. He doesn't know what to do. Stalin doesn't respond to his letters. He's kind of hoping that maybe Stalin and Hitler will break at some point. Um, and then when the break finally happens with Barbarossa, he's almost just beside himself, kind of kicking himself with glee. And, and unfortunately, I think he kind of lost his reason temporarily. Um, you know, so he doesn't just kind of side with Stalin and give the speech saying, well, you know, even though I used to be an anti-communist, all the crimes and follies now wash away, you know, because of the great drama on the Eastern Front. So Britain won't just support the Soviets, but he begins basically gifting over to Stalin, uh, not only British war material, but a lot of Lend-Lease war material, which had been pledged to Britain by the United States, which he decides to send to Stalin. You know, so I think this is the first questionable decision Churchill makes. The most famous example are the, the 200 Hawker hurricane fighters, you know, the workhorse of, of, of the RAF that had been pledged to defend Singapore, and Singapore famously will, of course, fall half a year later uh, to, to the Japanese, in part because it never did get these warplanes and didn't really get resupplied. Um, you know, later on, uh, they re-gift a lot of Canadian and, and American tanks and trucks and warplanes, and they, they send them all to Stalin. Um, the next year, in fact, uh, people are familiar with the whole drama about kind of uh, uh, Rommel and El Alamein in North North Africa. The part of the story not everyone knows is that part of the reason Egypt was so vulnerable was because Churchill was actually sending nearly all of the, the light tanks um, in, you know, either available to the Egyptian command or pledged to the Egyptian command via Lend-Lease aid. He ships all of those to the Soviet Union, you know, to help the Soviets bail out. And that's by, by then it's 1942, so it's like prior to Stalingrad. 
Um, now, by 1943, and here, here's where, again, I have a little bit more sympathy for kind of the decisions Churchill made, in part because, yes, maybe some of them were questionable, but he's in a much more difficult uh, position than Roosevelt. He, he does begin to, I think, realize a little bit of his mistake. So that, for example, the aluminum, uh, aluminium, as the Brits usually call it, which was being sent in these vast quantities to help basically supply Stalin's war factories, Britain does stop sending that in 1943 because Churchill's kind of, he feels the power, you know, leaking away. He realizes if Britain wants to have her own air force at all, she has to start husbanding her resources. I mean, in some ways, Roosevelt, again, his dilemmas weren't as acute. You know, he could be as reckless as he liked with American. After the passing of the Lend-Lease Act, effectively, all the authority was his. I mean, with a good faith clause, he could decide whatever he wanted, basically. He could, he could, he could tap the hydraulic forces of, of the United States to basically arm any regime on planet Earth that he, that he chose to, in, in theory, again, in the interest of U.S. national defense. Um, and you could certainly make an argument that, let's say, when the Soviets were in serious danger of going under in 1941, that there was some kind of a strategic interest in the United States and at the very least ensuring Soviet survival. But of course, he did a lot more than that. Um, and in fact, particularly after 1942, 1943, after Stalingrad and the battle we usually see called Kursk or Citadel in July 1943, when it was clear the Soviets were going to survive, it wasn't clear how easily or how soon they would be able to, to defeat the, the, the German Wehrmacht, but it was pretty clear they weren't going to go under. Um, you know, so there was in the original sunset clause, there was this, you, know, you, you had to renew it and come up with some compelling new strategic rationale. And presumably that rationale would have been weakened by 1943, if not even earlier. Instead, of course, it goes the other direction. You know, they, they ramp it up. Um, I mean, I'm almost thinking of um, what was that movie? I think Spaceballs. You know, they kind of go from ludicrous speed to whatever, warp speed to ludicrous speed. You know, they decide now we're going to basically... Uh, strain every resource in the merchant marine, you know, in the U.S. Navy, every single ship we have, every single item we have, practically, we're going to try to send to the Soviet Union. Um, and it goes, it doesn't just go, of course, to the European theater, it goes to the Pacific theater, which is even, even stranger when you think about it, because the Soviets, according to their neutrality pact with Japan, uh, they were, of course, not only not fighting Japan, they were actually helping Japan in a lot of ways. Um, not least by arresting U.S. pilots who happened to crash land on Soviet soil after bombing raids on Japan. Hundreds of them were actually interned as prisoners of war by the Soviet Union. So Stalin is effectively almost partnering with the regime in Japan. And yet, and yet the U.S. is sending vast quantities of war material across the Pacific Ocean through Japanese territorial waters to Vladivostok. Um, I mean, the, the, the final totals are just almost mind-boggling. I mean, something like almost 8.3 million tons are sent via that route, um, including nearly half were actually sent in the last 12 to 15 months of the Pacific War uh, during what you would have thought had been a very intense and high priority time in the war against Japan. The U.S. is still shipping, in that case, more than four million tons of war material, including nearly a million in tons just of refined fuel, aviation, gasoline, and such, uh, to basically supply Stalin's Far Eastern armies at a time when he was not only not helping, he was effectively, on, on, if not on the other side, then he was, he was effectively at best neutral and quite friendly to Japan. And keeping in mind how things then played out, uh, and the U.S. used atomic bombs on Japan largely to send a message to the Soviets who were in a position to be moving into Hokkaido uh, it's, it, it, it seems really strange that the U.S. had been arming Stalin to the teeth uh, just, uh, you know, months before that. Uh, I, it's very puzzling. It is 
very puzzling. I mean, I think obviously Truman, to a large extent, was kind of prisoner of both the war and the kind of the government of regime he'd inherited. I mean, all these policies of Roosevelt, unconditional surrender, obviously this kind of huge, I mean, almost like a kind of hobby horse of the president that he had you know, forced really on the allies. I mean, neither Stalin or Churchill really ever liked the idea. Um, it was his idea. Now, Truman, I mean, here's where I think Truman erred. He could have quietly tried to distance himself a little bit more. I mean, there were some advisors, people like the former ambassador to Japan, Joseph Crew, people like Herbert Hoover, who we at least was willing to listen to, the former president. A lot of advisors from the State Department who were trying to tell him, look, I mean, Roosevelt made promises to Stalin at Tehran and Yalta about spheres of influence in Asia, but, you know, Stalin's still neutral. Maybe we should con consider... Uh, being a little more flexible in unconditional surrender. Maybe we should consider trying to end the war before Stalin gets involved. Um, and Truman listened to their advice. I think, as you said, some of it might have also been that he just thought, I mean, this this whole business where he's famously he's a poker player. And so maybe he just thought, look, he had this winning hand once he got the news um, from New Mexico about, about the A-bomb program. But of course, it, it was kind of, it's not that it was counterproductive. It was just strategically almost absurd in a way that the U.S. on the one hand is trying to, again, and kind of wrestled Japan to the ground with this this terrible new weapon. Uh, theoretically, and, and I think Truman almost does kind of try this right at the end. I mean, he doesn't allow Stalin and the Soviets to join in the Potsdam Declaration. He does almost try to muscle them out of it at the last minute, which, of course, is completely undermined by the fact that the U.S. had just shipped, really, in the past eight to ten months, uh, three or four million tons of war material to the Soviets. And it wasn't just the ordinary limb shipments either. There, there are all these new extraordinary ones which were specifically designed to aid a Soviet offensive in northern Asia. And this wasn't a secret. It had been negotiated in Moscow the previous fall. Um, now, maybe again, maybe Truman wasn't clued into all of these dynamics. It's possible that he didn't really know the extent of the Lend-Lease aid, and he didn't know that it was really undermining his own policy objectives in, in Asia. Um, but it was. It, it was just logically and strategically, it was it was counterproductive. I mean, it was a real mess of a policy those last months of the Asian war. Um, again, you know, dropping the atomic bombs, you can argue the case one way or the other. Um, the, the Japanese may or may not have probably wouldn't have surrendered without some combination of that and the threat of Soviet intervention or Soviet intervention. But of course, that's assuming that unconditional surrender was the policy, right? So I think the other question was why Truman felt that he needed uh, to to carry out that policy of, of Roosevelt, um, you know, to 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 the end. Um, that really kind of, I think, tied his hands a little bit, and it closed off a lot of more logical options. Um, you yeah, know, we, in the end, you got this confrontation with no with no real logic to it because we were arming both sides. Right, right, and you know, we we could have a whole discussion about that. I actually did a show on the anniversary of the atomic bombings, but we're at the end of this show. Uh, if, Ten seconds. What do you what do you think about uh, the notion of public myths? Uh, Philip Zelico and his notion of constructing and maintaining public myths as the role of the historian. <laughs> Short answer. Ten seconds or less. Not not sure. Look, I understand the need to have people feel some kind of pride in their country, and maybe part of me feels a little bit bad about tearing down myths. Um, on the other hand, I think in the end, the truth is always the best tonic. And I think if we're going to be proud of our country, we should be proud, warts and all, and we should be able to uh, investigate the past and learn from it um, and, and, and hopefully learn something about uh, mistakes that we want to avoid making uh, today and in the future. Okay, uh, let's try and handle the truth. Thank you.
you so much, Sean McMeekin. Appreciate your great book, uh, Stalin's War, A New History of World War II. Keep up the great work. I hope to talk to you again because I could have gone on for another hour easily. Thanks for having me on, Kevin. It was a lot of fun. Likewise. Okay, take care. That's Sean McMeekin back in the next hour with Ron Unz, who also has an iconoclastic and revisionist view of history. We're going to be talking about biological warfare. Stick around. <laughs>